Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. In our current series, we have been exploring the Hebrew book entitled Song of Songs, which could be translated as the greatest song ever written. This book details a delicate dance of love shared between two peasant field workers. Although they are both humble in status and appearance, these two lovers see in each other all the glory and majesty of royalty. In our last episode, we saw the beloved frustrated by her shepherd king's aloofness. She anticipates and craves intimacy with her lover, but all of a sudden, he is nowhere to be seen. As we pick up the story from chapter 6 verse 11, we see the beloved pursue her shepherd king. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. I trembled with excitement, as if I was riding in a glorious chariot. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we might look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as if she dances for your amusement? Frustrated by his unexplained absence, the beloved's heads down to the nut orchard in search of her shepherd king. Again, she employs the language of new life blossoming to describe her uncertainty surrounding the status of her own relationship. Has love truly blossomed between the shepherd king and herself? Merely entertaining this question thrills the beloved with excitement, which she likens to the adrenaline rush of travelling full speed in a royal chariot, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a modern roller coaster. This passage presents numerous difficulties for the translator. For example, verse 12 in your Bible may look a little different to my translation of this verse. Also, in verse 13, it's rather difficult to decipher exactly who is talking. In the first two lines, somebody calls the beloved to return that they might look upon her. We may interpret these words as the shepherd king calling his beloved to his side. Alternatively, and this is the way most biblical translators go, these lines could be attributed to the daughters of Jerusalem who tease the beloved and charge her to return that they may look upon her. The former interpretation sees these lines as a lover's call to intimacy, while the latter sees a woman teased and tormented by her rivals. The term Shulamite is also difficult to translate. Some have argued that this term refers to the Mesopotamian goddess of love and war, Shulmanitu. Alternatively, it may be translated as the perfect one or the female equivalent of Solomon, who we have already encountered in this book. In any case, the term Shulamite communicates the glory, beauty and honour the beloved shepherd king ascribes to her. When spoken by the shepherd king himself, this title communicates his love and affection for the Shulamite. The beloved then responds with self-deprecation, asking her shepherd king why he should even be captivated by her, as one might be captivated by a graceful dancer. This question then prompts another monologue from the shepherd king in chapter 7, which extols his lover's beauty yet again. However, if we attribute the first two lines of verse 13 to the beloved's rivals, the daughters of Jerusalem, we can imagine the phrase, return, return, O Shulamite, being uttered in a sarcastic, mocking tone. 
their request to gaze upon the beloved reminds us of her insecurities regarding her appearance. Although the shepherd king may see her as a glorious king, the daughters of Jerusalem attempt to awaken the beloved's shame regarding her dark sunburnt skin. In response, the beloved shepherd king rebukes the daughters of Jerusalem, asking what right they have to gaze upon her for their own entertainment, and continues his monologue in chapter 7. Either way you interpret who's speaking in this passage, the beloved breathlessly pursues her shepherd king in the hope that he will reciprocate her love. Let's read on now from chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are works of art, beautiful as jewels. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks down toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in their tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best of wine. It goes down smoothly, gliding over lips and teeth. Notice how the shepherd king's description of his beloved has escalated along with their intimacy. In his earlier monologue, the shepherd king extols his beloved's beauty from the crown of her head down to her chest. Why does he stop there? Because that's everything to which he has access at that time. Because at this stage of the book, his beloved was like a locked garden, he tells us. In other words, he had not yet seen her complete naked form. But since then, the beloved has granted full access to her shepherd king, inviting him to become fully intimate with her. In fact, she now describes the garden, which was once described locked as her beloved's garden. Now beholding his beloved's complete naked form, the shepherd king explores and extols her beauty. Eager to investigate the uncharted territory of his beloved's naked form, the shepherd king begins examining her feet and systematically works his way up to the crown of her head. We might imagine the shepherd king running his hand along the woman's body parts as he caresses and praises every inch of her naked body. He compliments her rounded thighs and ample belly, which were considered beautiful and perhaps even a mark of wealth and prosperity in that culture. Moving upward, the shepherd king admires the symmetry of his beloved's breast and her pale long neck, which is significant given the beloved's insecurities about her dark skin. Again, we see the shepherd king view his beloved through rose-coloured glasses as he is blinded by mimetic love. 
although her skin has been scorched by the sun. In the king's eyes, his beloved's neck is long and pale like ivory. As a shepherd king continues upwards, he praises his beloved's eyes, which to him sparkle like pools of water by the gate of Beth Ravim. The shepherd king finds his beloved's eyes both beautiful and inviting. The name of this town, Beth Ravim, represents a play on words, as it actually means the daughter of a great people. Again, in the eyes of her shepherd king, the beloved is noble and virtuous. Her nose is straight and well set like the Tower of Lebanon. The beloved's posture is straight as she holds her head high. Like royalty, she stands head and shoulders above the daughters of Jerusalem. For this reason, her shepherd king likens her head to Mount Carmel, which juts out over the sea at the western end of the Jezreel Valley. Moving on to her hair, the shepherd king compares his beloved's flowing locks to a purple or scarlet-covered garment, commonly worn by royalty. Having completed his assessment, the shepherd king likens his beloved's hair to prison bars because he now finds himself utterly captivated by her beauty. The shepherd king summarizes his assessment once more by praising his beloved's beauty. He then focuses on her breasts as the object of his sexual desire. Likening his beloved to a palm tree bearing coconuts, the shepherd king desires to climb up and fondle her breasts. He imagines the full panel of sensory experiences associated with fondling his beloved's breasts and kissing her. The shepherd king likens his anticipated pleasure to enjoying sweet fruit with the finest of wine, which is consumed smoothly and sensually. As we read on from verse 10, the beloved responds to her shepherd king's monologue. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early in the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. The beloved repeats her refrain, I am my beloved's, but concludes it slightly differently this time. Instead of stating, my beloved is mine, the Shulamite states that his desire is for me. You may recall that the first time the beloved utters this phrase, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, it is spoken to the daughters of Jerusalem who are threatening to engage in rivalry with her. In this part of the narrative, the beloved clings to her shepherd king and when the daughters of Jerusalem engage in rivalry with her, she warns them to back off because her shepherd king belongs to her and her alone. She views him as a desired object to be pursued and fought for. When he wandered in the open square, the beloved apprehends him and brings him home to her mother's house. Yet now, her refrain has changed somewhat. Instead of staking her claim on the shepherd king as if he was simply an inanimate object to be apprehended, the beloved acknowledges her lover's desire and individual agency. 
Throughout their courtship, the beloved has come to know her shepherd king and how to deftly kindle his desire for her. Can you see the transition in these approaches? In the beloved's eyes, the shepherd king has transitioned from a desired object whose sole purpose is to fulfill her dreams to an individual with his own autonomy who deserves and commands her love and respect. I think what we see here is a genuine journey from infatuation and lust to love and respect. Again, the bride calls her shepherd king into the fields to check whether the time for love has indeed arrived. Of course, this repeated checking for the signs of love resonates with the beloved's warning to the daughters of Jerusalem to not awaken love before its time. In case we miss the sexual innuendo, the beloved calls her shepherd king to lodge, that is spend the night, in the villages with her. Moreover, the beloved assures us that the mandrakes are flowering and their fragrance is pungent. In ancient Israel, mandrakes were regarded as an aphrodisiac and perhaps even an aid to improve fertility. The beloved has harvested the mandrakes along with the best of fruit to enjoy together with her shepherd king. In other words, the beloved now calls her shepherd king into a new level of sexual intimacy as they spend the night together. In that place where their love blossoms, the beloved vows to give herself fully to her shepherd king. Reading on now from chapter 8 verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I mentioned in an earlier episode that this book was really a celebration of forbidden love. The beloved laments that she cannot openly love her shepherd king because their love affair is forbidden by those around them. We don't exactly know why. Perhaps one or both of them is already married to another, which frames this book in a completely new light and may help explain the Shepherd King's aloofness. Does he leave his beloved's presence to tend to his wife or family? Alternatively, one or both of our protagonists may be engaged to another person. Or maybe the family simply forbid their union, recreating a Shakespearean Capulet versus Montague type scenario. We just aren't told, and perhaps that's the whole point. It doesn't really matter why the love affair between the beloved and her shepherd king is forbidden. The Song of Songs simply celebrates the blossoming of forbidden love between two people and invites us into their experience. Although it might make many uneasy, there is no wedding between the beloved and her shepherd king throughout the entire book. There simply can't be because their love is forbidden and off limits. 
Attempting to transform this awkward reality, translators often curate the text somewhat by framing Solomon's royal possession in chapter 3 verse 6 as a wedding between the beloved and a shepherd king. For example, my ESV Bible inserts a heading, Solomon arrives for the wedding. But the text merely describes a royal possession, which seems otherwise disconnected from the interaction between the beloved and her shepherd king. Chapter 3 verse 11 mentions Solomon's crown, with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. The public nature of this visit, coupled with Solomon's mother's involvement in this wedding ceremony, contrasts the secret forbidden rendezvous of the beloved and her shepherd king, which take place in the deserted countryside under the cover of darkness. In our text, the beloved fantasizes about the veneer of shame being lifted from her relationship so that she might be able to publicly embrace her lover bring him into her mother's house and kiss him without being despised by the rest of the neighborhood. As uncomfortable as it might be for some, this story celebrates a forbidden love affair between two unmarried people. At this juncture, it might be helpful to think about how societal prohibitions may have actually fueled this forbidden union. We always want what we can't have. So long as their love remains forbidden, their hidden, stolen moments will taste all the more sweet to the beloved and her shepherd king. In the end, their desire for one another is fueled by the community who despise and forbid their love. One can imagine similar desires being kindled and secretly indulged among those who find themselves immersed in a purity culture. Rather than stifling sexual activity, such a culture actually feeds sexual desire and addiction while shrouding these natural impulses in shame, guilt and secrecy. The Song of Songs challenges us to reconsider the way our communities approach sex and desire as it glorifies the forbidden love story of the beloved and her shepherd king. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.